previously on Hacker Valley Red. As a security person, empathy dictates that we should be an advocate for our people. Can I do this job and not be a jerk? Like, is that even possible? Can someone do this job and really leave people feeling better for having met you? Forget the name, forget everything. Tell me what you want. What I really want is to teach people how they can be better humans. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. Welcome back to Hacker Valley Red. So many people say it's not about if you'll be the subject of a cyber attack, but when. And if this is true, we need experts keeping an eye on cybercrime activities and also the tactics of cyber criminals. We couldn't think of a better person to speak to than Charity Wright. Charity is an expert cyber threat intelligence analyst and helps organizations and people understand the motives behind cyber attacks. This episode was a bit eye-opening for me because there's a lot that I'm not informed on in the world of threat intelligence, and I think everyone can learn a lot from this episode. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, exploring the topic of a hacker's mind. And in the studio today with us, we have our favorite threat intel expert, not you, Chris, but we have <laughs> <laughs> but we have Charity Wright. Charity is a repeat guest on the podcast and also threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future. Charity, so glad to be speaking to you. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I am just honored to be back. Thank you. You know, Charity, it has been incredible to watch your ascension in the world. You're on the news. You're, you're doing all kinds of crazy, awesome projects, but you're still finding that time to do the deep, dark research that you're used to doing. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. I am a threat intel analyst at Recorded Future, so I get to kind of dig into whatever I see trending. I specialize in both dark web, like criminal underground stuff, and also everything China. And I, I started my career back in the U.S. Army, spent 10 years as a Chinese linguist, and worked a few of those at NSA doing intel analysis. So that's kind of how I got into this uh, realm. And recently, we've been doing a little bit of everything. I wrote a big report on China this past summer about China's digital colonization around the world and recently been digging into some localized dark web markets. And of course, information operations is a new realm that Recorded Future is digging into now too. 
love it. Always up to something. And whenever I think of the dark web and whenever we speak, I always go back to China. I know that's one of your areas of expertise is really understanding what's going on over there. But what have been some of the surprises that you've gained over the past year just doing the research that you've been doing? You know, China is such a big one to tackle. <laughs> they are doing so much. They're growing so fast. And as a competitor, you know, to the U.S., uh, they've presented quite a lot of threats and challenges. So, um, you know, the, the this past summer, starting in early spring, actually started digging into just the scope of how fast they're expanding their digital empire, let's call it. And, you know, through the Belt and Road Initiative, they're building out um, digital infrastructure in regions like Africa, Latin America, South Asia. And unfortunately, there come some very high risks involved with accepting, you know, Chinese internet infrastructure in the country. So China's digital colonialism, the, that report really revolved around that topic. And what does it mean for the world? when they're loaning billions of dollars to these very poor countries, you know, state-backed loans that eventually cannot be repaid. And then China is confiscating infrastructure, critical infrastructure in those countries and building out 5G and implementing satellite technology all over the world. And, and so, you know, we've been uh, digging into those cyber threats, as well as, you know, really high level strategic intelligence that's valuable all the way up to, you know, non-governmental organizations, public sector. So that was really exciting. I've also been really focused on information operations. So I've been digging into tradecraft and methodology around psychological operations. What is China doing? What is their propaganda strategy? And a lot of it's very overt. They have government public documentation out there that us linguists and translators can just translate. And they say exactly what their plan is. And they're implementing influence operations all over the world, not just in the United States, to try to coerce the world to a more China-friendly perspective, understand what their values are. And really create more solid partnerships around the world through influence. And that happens to fall on us as cyber threat intelligence analysts, because I guess uh, we're the critical thinkers that know how to analyze complex data sets. <laughs> you know, what's incredible about having this conversation with you is I think you are the one that has been thinking from the nation state level more than anybody else in the community. So if we could personify the mentality of a nation state when it comes to these information operations, to hacking in general, from their perspective, what is it they're looking to do? And how are some of the means they're looking to do that stuff? Mm -hmm. Man, that's a good question. Um, they claim one thing in public. It's really important to point this out knowing kind of behind the scenes from the secured side of what I did before, we know that their words don't align with their actions, which is important to point out because a lot of academics and a lot of people around the world will say, oh, but the Chinese Communist Party said that they want a peaceful rise and they're just trying to grow on their own terms. 
yes, that's what they say because that's the reputation they want to build for themselves because they're trying to build alliances around the world. But their high-level goals are the growth and well-being of the Chinese people, which is fair, right? But when it comes down to how they're doing that, um, claiming territorial, let's say, islands in the South China Sea that are disputed, they're not giving much room for negotiation. It's like, no, this is ours. And Hong Kong is ours. And Taiwan is ours. And it's nobody else's business to get involved. So they're fiercely protective of their territories and territorial growth right now. And for them, one strategy that they're doing is, let's say, how are they? It's really all around foreign policy. They are expanding their territories digitally by, you know, many different layers, building out infrastructure projects in other countries, establishing new norms around internet governance, which has significant ramifications around the world. And not only that, but also digital products. So Chinese applications, social media, and they're really trying to step up as an influencer in the world. Because the reality is right now, they're number two global power behind the US. And they have stated very clearly that if they end up number one, that's just because of, of their potential and, and how no one can contain their growth. I mean, granted, they do have the largest population in the world. And they're utilizing that population in, in very smart ways. So military growth, military technology, they've set up uh, complex systems within China to recruit very intelligent individuals that, you know, excel in science, technology, engineering, and math. They're growing their space program, growing military equipment and missile programs, and then, of course, the hacking, you know, their state-sponsored hacking operations have, have grown tremendously. And I, I believe they are um, our number one threat right now when it comes to cyber intrusions. They're very, very smart about how they, how they do it. And they have the long game in mind. Mm. That is something I think a lot of people forget is that in Western nations like our own, we are at the whim of our political system, which we honor, uh, you know, having a democracy, it's a privilege, um, but it's also very fragile. And something that I think China, uh, it plays to their advantage is that they have consistency in their government. The Chinese Communist Party runs everything and they coordinate everything through all of the agencies. So you've got this giant, mechanism just working all towards long-term and short-term objectives. And they really do have the long game in mind. They're looking out 20, 30, 50 years of what does China want to be and how do we want to influence the world with our values. And so um, while we're squabbling and being torn apart for political reasons internally, they are dead on towards their targets, you know, not being swayed by, by, you know, accusations that COVID-19 originated in Wuhan. They're like, 
no, it didn't. It originated in the U.S. So they're just trying to like mm. turn everything on the United States and and defend their own well-being and growth. When doing research a long time ago, I read something that there's a big difference in mentality between the United States and China, and it really goes towards the language and the culture of the Chinese nation. So when they look at things in general, they're looking at 100 years forward, like you were talking about, whereas language and culture in the United States is very now, what are we doing tomorrow type of mentality. Is that really true? Is that really a part of the language in the Chinese culture? And is there anything else that we can kind of glean from that, that fact? Yes, you are so right. And we have to kind of take a step back and look at where these two different countries are. Even though they're very close in competition right now, China has experienced tremendous growth, but they still are dealing with poverty. So a lot of people in China, um, I mean, granted, not everyone, and, and there are very serious human rights violations that we're concerned about that are happening at the hand of the Communist Party, but many people in the country, they are willing to sacrifice privacy to have security and moderate wealth is something they're promoting right now. Like uh, moderate prosperity is what the president is pushing there. And that is this communist, you know, socialist idea that we're not trying to make everyone rich. We're trying to give everyone, you know, some kind of equal opportunity to provide for their families. So from the internal perspective, the mind of the people and the mind of the Chinese Communist Party, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. They know that it's going to be a little bit of a journey, but they want steady and stable growth. Whereas I think in the United States, we've become very comfortable having that number one spot and being uh, you know, the most powerful military in the world and having wartime experience. And we've gotten very comfortable in that place. And so now it's about what direction do we want to go in the future, which has caused a lot of this dissent in, in our own country between the two political parties. And of course, influence operations has had a major effect on our political system, as we saw last year with the 2020 election and this year, January 6th, the insurrection that happened, disinformation has played a major role in why Americans are so divided right now and how everyone is feeling, you know, very on edge. Wow. We're, we're really pulling the layers back. I think like there's so much that goes into all of this, like that things that we don't typically get to see, maybe things that you're more close with because you're looking at the information, you're you're on all of the right places to get exposure to see what's going on underneath of the hood. From like a cybersecurity perspective, a threat intelligence perspective, what are things that other nations are doing to get ahead that I guess we could all learn from? Mm-hmm. You know, there's the nation state aspect and then there's the cyber criminal aspect. And both have serious, serious issues. Like we're, we're really dealing with China and Russia the most right now when it comes to APT intrusions. Um, North Korea is kind of taking a step back, although they're still very financially motivated. Iran has taken a step back as they're dealing with more regional issues. But Russia and China still have a, a focus on the United States. So I think um, they definitely present one of one of the biggest threats, especially 
supply chain attacks, third party, you know, third party risks. They know how to exploit our supply chain. They've seen, you know, through multiple smaller level um, tests on our critical infrastructure, they know where to hit us the hardest. And, and so that is a major concern. But another thing that's at the top of mind for, for everyone right now around the world is ransomware. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just from a strategic perspective, we're putting a lot of pressure on Russia to keep the ransomware groups accountable to some standard. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, it hasn't worked over the past couple of years, but some of the diplomats are starting to take note as the U.S. is really cracking down with sanctions, which has been, you know, extremely damaging to a lot of their politicians, diplomats, and and the economy, of course. So I think we're starting to make some headway in that area, but I definitely think ransomware is going to stay a top threat until law enforcement around the world starts like really pressuring hard on those groups. I've been out of the threat intelligence game for about two years at this point. Man, time is flying. When you look at the lines between APTs and criminals, it seems like it's starting to blur because now you have nation states that are acting more like criminal syndicates. And now you have criminal syndicates that are starting to have the resources and the funding of nation states. From your perspective, are those lines starting to blur a little bit? And could you speak a little bit about it? Yes, absolutely. You know, our Russia experts just put out a report recently about the connections between the Kremlin and some of these famous ransomware groups and criminal threat actors. And I feel like it was very profound intelligence. We definitely upset a lot of people in Russia with that uh, report. (laughs) But, you know, we're here to reveal truth. And that's what people want. You know, enterprises and governments alike, they want to know the truth behind what are the real connections between criminals and governments. And we do see that in China as well. And of course, North Korea, you know, they, they control everything. So they definitely control the hacking operations there. But yes, our team was able to make some very strong correlations and connections between Kremlin actors and, you know, some of these very notorious cyber criminals. So it's becoming more of a matter of, okay, you want to manage your own nation's infrastructure. You want to be independent and kind of cut yourselves off from the world a bit, like China's Great Firewall and the RUNET, uh, Russia's RUNET. But that means that if we provide evidence that these hacking operations are coming out of your country, then we do expect you to hold them accountable too. Otherwise, we're going to bring the pain, basically. And, you know, a lot, uh, there is some debate about the effectiveness of sanctions around the world, but seems to be putting the appropriate amount of pressure in a, in a very non-aggressive, non-violent way. So these findings are really remarkable. And I think that we're, we're going to be observing similar trends over the next couple of years as being able to make those connections, really having more cyber threat intel analysts in the space doing threat hunting. And, you know, the more plausible the evidence, the less they can deny. Right. 
I'm glad that you mentioned ransomware because that was one of the topics that we just had on the podcast and spoke about it from our perspective and the things that we know and did research on. But I think there's so much more going on. It seems like we're almost spiraling out of control with the amount of ransomware related attacks that we're seeing from all of your research that you're doing on the dark web and kind of seeing that information unfold in front of you. What is going on in the minds of the attacker? Like, how do they get to this point to where they are launching attacks like ransomware and also building organizations based off of all of the success that they've had with it? Man, these ransomware groups, um, there's something else. I wish I had more time to dig in on like psychological profiles of some of these, some of the leaders of these groups, because you know, Record of Future, we have a couple of individuals that specialize in ransomware, Alan Liska and Dimitri Smilionets. And they've actually, like Dimitri has actually interviewed, he interviewed the leader of the Rebel Ransomware Group and, and then more recently Dark Matter, or I think it was Black Matter. The, the insights that we got from these interviews were really important, is that we know that they're still focused on, you know, financial motivation they always go back to the, I, I'm going to call it an excuse that we're providing for our families. Okay, well, mm. how many billions of dollars do you need before you've provided for your family? So, you know, they're still very financially motivated. The extortion sites are one of the biggest changes we've seen over the past year, just a dramatic increase in extortion sites. So even if you do pay the ransomware, they still put some of your information out there or at least name and shame you. And then on the opposite side, those that refuse to pay, oftentimes like their data is released publicly um, because it, it makes them very, very upset when you don't pay the ransom. And we've also seen this new trend. Uh, we've had some, some insight into some of the conversations between the victims and the threat actors especially those that are uh, clients of ours. They, they show us some of the conversations and that is happening. And ransomware groups really hate it when you get a third-party negotiator involved. <laughs> mm. Like they will tell you, if you bring a third-party negotiator in, we will cut you off. Like that's it. You lost your opportunity to pay and get your access back. It's been very entertaining, actually. We've we've seen some really spicy conversations between the hackers and the victims going, no, screw you guys. We're not paying the ransom. We have backups of this and that. And the ransomware actor will come back, say something really smart. Like, oh, we'll still reveal <laughs> all your data. You don't know who you're messing with and just making threats. And you can see that they get really upset and scared. Like, oh, this is very frustrating. Like, you know, we don't know how much work they put into actually getting access to that data and actually infiltrating that company, but it's probably a lot. And they've probably paid a lot to third parties that work with their organization or affiliates, you know, paid for certain exploits to gain access to certain companies. So when they don't get paid, they get real mad. Mm. <laughs> so I know you're tracking a lot of different groups or tracking countries, and I'm sure you're even tracking some of those key individuals. Have you ever tracked someone for so long that you feel like you really know them, you know their mind, you know what makes them tick? And is there a story that you could share about some of that interaction that goes on when you're doing your research? Uh, 
Yeah, a couple things come to mind. It makes me laugh a little. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, I guess I should focus on the unclassified example because back at NSA, like I knew my targets very well, like, Mm -hmm. you know, all the little details. Now in the private sector, I would say, you know, I spend so many hours every day um, trolling Chinese propaganda and a lot of it is very overt. So they're using state-sponsored media newspapers, news agencies to push out, you know, certain narratives that they want the rest of the world to believe about China, but also um, a lot of government officials. So their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Zhao Lijian is is one of the spokespersons. He's a spokesman for their Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And he has kind of a cult following in China. It's really entertaining because the trolls that are likely, highly likely paid by the Chinese government to amplify what he is putting out on Twitter, they're kind of entertaining and funny. Um, So I really like following Zhao Lijian and seeing what kind of uh, disinformation and false rumors or just ridiculous things that he's sharing because a lot of them will be conspiracy theories, just baseless accusations. And it's almost like following a tabloid. Uh, So, you know, at the end of the day, I have to kind of pull myself out of that hole and be like, what's real? What's happening in my world? Because I'm so immersed in in the Chinese mindset all day. But um, one thing about Zhao Lijian is he uses his authority to um, project this national voice of of China. And so all of the little trolls will fight so hard on Twitter for him. They're very, very loyal. And if anyone comes to accuse him of something or or say something bad about China, it's just like a cat fight in, on Twitter. So it's pretty entertaining, especially in Chinese. But um, a lot of times they use English because they're trying to make a point to English speaking crowds and audiences. So uh, it can it can get pretty fun. I want to kind of touch on what is what is their mindset. And one thing that I've observed over the past several months of, you know, kind of being immersed in the propaganda apparatus is that China keeps it very simple. And, and that statement, keep it simple, stupid, that always pops in my head. Like, mm. it doesn't have to be complicated. Like, psyops can be very complex. You mm. know, examining your audience, finding out, uh, you know, what's important to them. What do they value? What is their culture? And then finding things they, you know, you can go into uh, into the depths analyzing how to target an audience with a certain message or narrative, but China keeps it very simple. No matter what message they choose, they project it at a very high volume. Like every day, hundreds of tweets or posts or, or whatever is happening around the world, they'll, they'll just push it out through every means possible, very high volume and consistency. They don't change the message much. They stick with the original message. It's coordinated across the entire country's media ecosystem. And that's it. It's a high volume and consistency over time. And after months and months and months, eventually people believe it because that's what they're seeing every day. 
from not only government sources, but also private sector sources. And then a Western news agency will report on, oh, um, you know, we saw this in Chinese news. Is this real or is it not? But even talking about how it's not real or correct amplifies their message even further. And it makes people wonder, what do they know that we don't know? (laughs) So it's, unfortunately, it's very effective. And uh, they've been very successful with their influence operations in in some ways. And uh, honestly, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I think we're just seeing them testing the waters and seeing what they're capable of, what what's working, what's not working. And I do predict it's going to get more intense over the years. Charity, with all the things that you're saying right now, I'm sure there's cybersecurity practitioners that are listening and they're thinking, wow, I've been so in the weeds. I've been so tactical and technical that I never even thought to pause and think about things at the strategic level, at the nation state level. What is that one piece of advice that you would have to give to those practitioners that want to use some of that strategic level thinking in their day-to-day cyber work? Add it to your intelligence requirements. Maybe start with one, like maybe add one strategic intelligence requirement to your list. Like, you know, a lot of organizations, they don't even have requirements or priorities. They don't know how to build them out. So I always encourage them to start with a small number. Maybe, you know, what physical threats are there to our organizations and our digital infrastructure? Or how would you know, maybe a a nation state level thing, like how would China's APTs be likely to, oh gosh, there's so many different examples. I can't even, I have, (laughs) I have a million things in my mind for influence operations. I would say it depends on the organization. Not all cyber threat groups need to know about influence operations. A lot of public sector do, Uh, But keep in mind, there's also disinformation as a service happening in the private sector. So, you know, criminals for hire can skew views of your company, make your CEO look bad, and that could often be used as a distraction while conducting a cyber intrusion in the background. So um, I think it's important to maybe add one intel requirement about strategic intelligence and and kind of keep your vendors accountable uh, for providing that. And if they don't specialize, I mean, Recorded Future does. So (laughs) shameless plug. Of course. No, no, I'm glad you did. You know, Charity, thank you so much. This was a masterclass into the mind of a nation state. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible research that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, CharityW4CTI, or you can email me charity.write at recordedfuture.com. Excellent. Thank you for the information. We'll be sure to drop that in the show notes. I can't wait for us to have you on the podcast again. It's just a matter of time. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.